Section 5 of the Tribune of Nova Scotia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gilles Leblanc. The Tribune of Nova Scotia. A Chronicle of Joseph Howe by William Lawson Grant. The Fight for Responsible Government, Part 2. We can see the true resolve that was in such a man, but those who fought hand to hand with him may be excused if they could not see it. He was the enemy of their privileges, therefore of their order, therefore of themselves. It was a bitter pill to swallow when a man in his position was elected member for the county. The floodgates seemed to have opened. Young gentlemen in and out of college swore great oaths over their wine, and the deeper they drank the louder they swore. Their elders declared that the country was going to the dogs, that in fact it was no longer fit for gentlemen to live in. Young ladies carried themselves with greater hauteur than ever, heroically determined that they at least would do their duty to society. Old ladies spoke of Antichrist, or sighed for the millennium. All united in sending Howe to Coventry. He felt the stings. They have scorned me at their feasts, he once burst out to a friend, and they have insulted me at their funerals. When Uniac left the Tory camp, his own friends and relatives cut him in the street. When Lord Falkland requested the resignations of the four irresponsible councillors, their loyalty to the Crown did not restrain their attacks upon himself. His sending his servants to a concert was spoken of as a deliberate insult to the Society of Halifax and his secretary was accused of robbing a pawnbroker's shop to replenish his wardrobe. There was too much of human nature in Joe Howe to take all this without striking hard blows in return. He did strike, and he struck from the shoulder. He said what he thought about his opponents with a bluntness that was absolutely appalling to them. He went straight to the mark, aimed at with Napoleonic directness. They were stunned. They had been accustomed to be treated so differently, Hitherto there had been so much courtliness of manner in Halifax, the gradations of rank had been recognized by everyone, and the great men and the great women had been treated always with deference. But here was a Jacobin who changed all this, who in dealing with them called a spade a spade, who searched pitilessly into their claims to public respect, and if he found them impostors, declared them to be impostors, and who advocated principles that would turn everything upside down. Lord Falkland was a well-meaning young nobleman of great good looks and small political experience. His ruling characteristic was pride. Shortly before leaving Halifax, he had his carriage horses shot, lest on his departure they should fall into plebeian hands. His hauteur was fortified by his wife, daughter by a morganatic marriage of King William IV. Could such a man carry through a compromise by which men of opposite views should sit in his cabinet? In Canada it had taken all the skill and political experience of Lord Sydenham. Under Sir Charles Metcalfe the new wine burst the old bottles, bespattering more than one reputation in the process. That the new governor would soon take offence at the jovial, self-confident, free manners of Howe was almost certain. The new executive council was a compromise. Prime Minister there was none. Its head was still the governor whom Howe himself admitted to be still responsible only to his sovereign. 
on the question which in canada brought about the quarrel between sir charles metcalfe and his advisers howe said in eighteen forty that in nova scotia the patronage of the country is at his the governor's disposal to aid him in carrying on the government in eighteen forty one he still accorded him the initiative saying that the governor as the queen's representative still dispenses the patronage but that as the council are bound to defend his appointments the responsibility even as regards appointments is nearly as great in the one case as in the other during these years howe had a delicate role to play the extreme and logical members of his own party attacked him as a trimmer on the other hand any one of the four extruded councillors was considered by society to be worth a hundred howes and society was not slow to make its feelings known the fight was fiercest in the executive council where the party of caution if not of reaction was led by the hon j w johnston tall and distinguished in appearance with dark flashing eyes and imperious temper a fine probity in his private life and with a keen though somewhat lawyer-like intellect johnston was no unworthy antagonist to the great tribune of the people though of good birth and recognized in society as howe was not he was a baptist and so not hampered in the popular mind by any connection with the official church nor were his views on government illiberal the controversy between him and howe was rather of temperament than of principles between the keen lawyer mistrustful of spontaneity lingering fondly over his precedents and the impulsive overtrustful overgenerous lover of humanity in the working out of the new system anomalies soon developed which falkland was not the man to minimize howe himself was still a little misty in his views and accepted the speakership as well as a seat in the executive council thus becoming at once umpire and participant a position impossible to-day in the next year however he resigned the speakership to accept the post of collector of customs for halifax but the great wrangle was over the extent to which responsible government had been conceded one member of the government said that responsible government was responsible nonsense it was independence it would be a severing of the link that bound the colony to the mother country johnston at the time sitting in the upper house did not go so far but said that in point of fact it is not the intention to recognize the direct responsibility which has been developed in the address to concede such would be inconsistent with colonial relations there was no fundamental discrepancy between johnston's views and those of howe later on in the same speech johnston while considering the subject to be incapable of exact definition yet said that the change simply is that it becomes the duty of the representative of her majesty to ascertain the wishes and feelings of the people through their representatives and to make the measures of government conform to these so far as is consistent with his duty to the mother country this is really much the same as howe's statement that the executive which is to carry on the administration of the country should sympathize with to a large extent and be influenced by and when proper be composed of to a certain degree those who possess the confidence of the country especially when this is taken in connection with his other statement that he had no wish for colonial assemblies to interfere in the great national regulations in arrangements respecting the army or navy of the empire or the prerogatives of the parliament or crown 
but the emphasis was different howe insisted on the greatness of the change in local administration johnston on the amount of still surviving control by the mother country the little rift in the lute was already apparent and was increased by the natural tendency of the governor to consult the courtly johnston and to show impatience at the brusque familiarity of howe the tension became greater and greater there is no reason to doubt that both howe and johnston tried to play the game but their temperaments and their associates were different and they grew more and more mistrustful of each other accusations of treachery began to fly by the autumn of eighteen forty two howe had ceased to disguise his conviction that the administration as at present constituted cannot go on a great while longer the final break-up came over the question of education it is sad that this should have been so for howe well knew that education should bring peace and not a sword we may make education a battleground he said where the laurels we reap may be wet with the tears of our country at this time primary education was optional given in private schools aided in some cases by provincial grants both howe and johnston would fain have substituted a compulsory system supported by local assessments but both feared the repugnance of the country voters to direct taxation and it was not till eighteen sixty four that dr afterwards sir charles tupper took this fearless and notable step forward in the meantime both howe and johnston supported the increase of grants to education the establishment of circulating libraries and the appointment of a superintendent of education but if schools were too few universities were too many and it was here that the quarrel began king's college at windsor was avowedly anglican an attempt had been made in eighteen thirty eight to revive dalhousie as undenominational but the bigotry of sir colin campbell and of a rump board of governors under presbyterian influence refused to appoint as professor the rev dr crawley on the almost openly avowed ground that he was a baptist the aggrieved denomination then hived off and started at wolfville their own university known as acadia the roman catholics had for some time had in operation st mary's college at halifax all these received grants from the government and were endeavouring to do university work in a very imperfectly educated community of three hundred thousand people theoretically the system was absurd but each of the little colleges had its band of devoted adherents held fast to it by the strongest of all ties that of religion most of all was this the case with acadia founded in hot and justifiable anger and eager to justify its existence had howe been a wary politician he would have thought twice before stirring up such a wasp's nest more especially as the baptists had hitherto been his faithful supporters but howe was both more and less than a wary politician and when early in eighteen forty three a private member brought in resolutions in favour of withdrawing the grants from the existing colleges and of founding one good college free from sectarian control and open to all denominations maintained by a common fund howe supported him with all his might in thus deferring from his colleagues on a question of primary importance he was undoubtedly guilty of ignoring the doctrine of collective cabinet responsibility the heather was soon on fire johnston came vigorously to the rescue of acadia the baptist newspaper attacked howe in no measured terms 
crawley himself in speeches endeavoured to show the extreme danger to religion of the plan projected by mr howe of one college in halifax without any religious character and which would be liable to come under the influence of infidelity howe repaid invective with invective i may have been wrong but yet when i compare these peripatetic writing wrangling grasping professors either with the venerable men who preceded them in the ministry of their own church or in the advent of christianity i cannot but come to the conclusion that either one set or the other have mistaken the mode take all the baptist ministers from one end of the province to the other the hardings the dimocks the tuppers take all that have passed away from Elin to burton men who have suffered every privation preaching peace and contentment to a poor and scattered population and the whole together never created as much strife exhibited so paltry an ambition or descended to the mean arts of misrepresentation to such an extent in all their long and laborious lives as these two arrogant professors of philosophy and religion have done in a short period of half a dozen years in reply to dr crawley he contrasted the students of an undenominational college drinking at the pure streams of science and philosophy with the students of acadia imbibing a sour sectarian spirit on a hill it is said if a college is not sectarian it must be infidel is infidelity taught in our academies and schools no and yet not one of them is sectarian a college would be under strict discipline established by its governors clergymen would occupy some of its chairs moral philosophy which to be sound must be based on christianity must be conspicuously taught and yet the religious men who know all this raise the cry of infidelity to frighten the farmers in the country johnston in evident alarm at the success of howe's agitation persuaded the governor to dissolve the house and hold a general election at the same time he himself with great courage resigned his life membership of the legislative council and offered himself as a candidate for the assembly a hot election followed in which both howe and johnston were returned at the head of approximately equal numbers by this time howe had learned his lesson a halfway house might be a useful stopping place but could not be a terminus a unanimous cabinet was a necessity and a unanimous cabinet was possible only if backed by a unanimous party he therefore offered lord falkland either to resign or to form a liberal administration from which johnston and those who thought with him should be excluded this lord falkland could not see nor yet could johnston the latter unequivocally denounced the system of a party government and avowed his preference for a government in which all parties should be represented at last on falkland's urgent request howe consented to remain in the government till the house met a few days later the governor suddenly appointed to the executive council mr Allman, a high tory and johnston's brother-in-law it was too much howe and his liberal colleagues at once resigned was he in the right with Almond as a man they had no quarrel howe and johnston were both well qualified to serve their native province why should one consume his energy in trying to keep out the other the answer is that a government is not merely composed of heads of separate departments 
it is a unity responsible for a coherent policy and as such cannot contain two men however estimable who differ on political fundamentals it is howe's merit that he saw this while johnston and falkland did not after all their loud cries for a non-party administration only meant an administration in which their own party was supreme howe was wholly in the right when he said that johnston's epithet should be here lies the man who denounced party government that he might form one and professing justice to all parties gave every office to his own there followed three years of hard fighting johnston formed an administration which was sustained by a majority varying from one to three debates of thirteen and fourteen days were common howe's relations with lord falkland had at first been those of intimate friendship and for a time the quarrel was conducted with decorum several months after his resignation he could write personal or factious opposition to your lordship i am incapable of but a literary gentleman in close connection with lord falkland began in the press a series of fierce attacks on howe and the other liberal leaders of lord falkland's sanction and approval there could be little doubt his lordship himself said in private conversation that between him and howe it was war to the knife and personally denounced him and his dispatches to the colonial office howe was not the man to refuse such a challenge though retaining his seat in the house he resumed the editorship of the nova scotian which he had abandoned in eighteen forty one from his editorial chair he not only guided the parliamentary opposition but pelted the governor himself with a shower of pasquinades in prose and verse lord falkland has practically put himself at the head of the tory party said howe and as a political opponent he shall have no mercy a flood of rablazian banter was poured upon the head of the unhappy nobleman he was attacked in his pride his tenderest place it is impossible not to wish that howe had shown more moderation he had of course precedent on his side nothing which he wrote was so bad as the language of queen elizabeth to her counsellors or of frederick the great to voltaire he was neither more savage than junius nor more indecent than sir charles hanbury williams in his attacks on king george the second but times had changed mouths and manners had grown cleaner and much of howe's banter is over coarse for present-day palates but of its effectiveness there is no doubt he fairly drove the unhappy falkland out of the province after all his ryery was an instrument in the fight for freedom and a less deadly one than the sighs and the muskets of mackenzie or papineau a squib which produced much comment in its day was the lord of the bedchamber which begins thus the lord of the bedchamber sat in his shirt and g die the pliant was there and his feelings appeared to be very much hurt and his brow overclouded with care it was plain from the flush that o'ermantled his cheek and the fluster and haste of his stride that drowned and bewildered his brain had grown weak by the blood pumped aloft by his pride so it goes on not unamusing full of topical allusions and bad puns the serious johnston with some lack of humour brought the matter up in the house and came near to accusing howe of high treason 
Howe wisely refused to take the matter seriously, and defended himself in a speech of which a fair sample is, This is the first time I ever suspected that to hint that noblemen wore shirts was a grave offence, to be prosecuted in the High Court of Parliament by an Attorney-General. Had the author said that the Lord of the Bedchamber wore no shirt, or that it stuck through his pantaloons, there might have been good ground of complaint. On the more serious question, he said, The time has come when I must do myself justice. An honest fame is as dear to me as Lord Falkland's title is to him. His name may be written in Burke's peerage. Mine has no record but on the hills and valleys of the country which God has given us for an inheritance, and must live, if it lives at all, in the hearts of those who tread them. Their confidence and respect must be the reward of their public servants. But if these noble provinces are to be preserved, those who represent the sovereign must act with courtesy and dignity and truth to those who represent the people. Who will go into a governor's council if, the moment he retires, he is to have his loyalty impeached, to be stabbed by secret dispatches, to have his family insulted, his motives misrepresented, and his character reviled? What Nova Scotian will be safe? What colonist can defend himself from such a system if a governor can denounce those he happens to dislike and get up personal quarrels with individuals it may be convenient to destroy? In 1846, the quarrel came to a crisis. The Speaker of the House and his brother, a prominent member of the opposition, were connected with an English company formed for building Nova Scotian railways. To the astonishment of everybody, a dispatch from Lord Falkland to the Colonial Office was brought down and read before the Speaker's face, in which his own name and that of his brother were repeatedly mentioned, and in which they were held up to condemnation as the associates of reckless and insolvent men. Howe was justly indignant at this gross breach of constitutional procedure and indeed of ordinary good manners. Leaping to his feet, he said, I should but ill discharge my duty to the house or to the country if I did not this instant enter my protest against the infamous system pursued, a system of which I can speak more freely now that the case is not my own, by which the names of respectable colonists are libelled in dispatches sent to the colonial office, to be afterwards published here, and by which any brand or stigma may be placed upon them without their having any means of redress. If that system be continued, some colonist will, by and by, or I am much mistaken, hire a black fellow to horsewhip a lieutenant governor. In reply to a vote of censure by the House, he defended himself in a letter to his constituents, of which the pith is in the final sentences. But, I think I hear someone say, after all, friend Howe, was not the supposititious case which you anticipated might occur somewhat quaint and eccentric and startling? It was, because I wanted to startle, to rouse, to flash the light of truth over every hideous feature of the system. The fire-bell startles at night, but if it rings not, the town may be burned, and wise men seldom vote him an incendiary who pulls the rope, and who could not give the alarm and avert the calamity unless he made a noise. The prophet's style was quaint and picturesque when he compared the great king to a sheep-stealer, but the object was not to insult the king. It was to make him think, to rouse him, to let him see by the light of a poetic fancy the gulf to which he was descending, that he might thereafter love mercy, walk humbly, 
and controlling his passions keep untarnished the luster of the crown david let other men's wives alone after that flight of nathan's imagination and i will venture to say that whenever hereafter our rulers desire to grill a political opponent in an official dispatch they will recall my homely picture and borrow wisdom from the past later in the year lord falkland was recalled and appointed governor of bombay soon afterwards howe wrote to a friend poor falkland will not soon forget nova scotia where he learned more than ever he did at court i ought to be grateful to him for but for the passages of arms between us there were some tricks of fence i had not known besides i now estimate that their true value some sneaking dogs that i should have been caressing for years to come and lots of noble-hearted friends that only the storms of life could have taught me adequately to prize falkland's successor was sir john harvey in old days a hero of the war of eighteen twelve more recently governor of new brunswick shortly after his coming he endeavoured to induce howe and his friends to enter the government but howe now saw victory within his grasp and had no mind for further coalitions to a friend he wrote i do not in the abstract disapprove of coalitions where public exigencies or an equal balance of parties create a necessity for them but hold that when formed the members should act in good faith and treat each other like gentlemen should form a party in fact and take the field against all other parties without if they quarrel and fight and knock the coalition to smithereens then a governor who attempts to compel men who cannot eat together and are animated by mutual distrust to serve in the same cabinet and bullies them if they refuse is mad foiled in his well-meant attempt sir john then consulted the colonial office into that department a new spirit had come with the arrival in eighteen forty six of lord grey who replied with a dispatch in which the principles of responsible government were laid down in the clearest terms while at the same time the reformers were warned that only the holders of the great political offices should be subject to removal and that there should be no approach to the spoils system which was at the time disgracing the united states in eighteen forty seven the reformers carried the province and sir john harvey gave to their leaders his loyal support mr uniac was called on to form an administration in which howe was given the post of provincial secretary there was a final flurry for a month or two the province was convulsed by the conduct of the former provincial secretary sir rupert d george who amid the plaudits of fashionable halifax refused to resign but sir rupert was dismissed with a pension and joe howe ruled in his stead the ten years conflict was at an end the printer's boy had faced the embattled oligarchy and had won it was a bloodless victory heart-burning indeed there was and the breaking up of friendships but it is the glory of howe that responsibility was won in the maritime provinces without rebellion in the next year in his song for the centenary of the landing of the britons in halifax he exultantly broke out the blood of no brother in civil strife poured and this hour of rejoicing encumbers our souls the frontiers the field for the patriot's sword and cursed is the weapon that faction controls in conclusion we must ask ourselves was it worth while 
was the winning of responsible government a good thing we are apt to take this for granted too many of our historians write as if all the members of the family compact had been selfish and corrupt and all our present statesmen were altruistic and pure both propositions are equally doubtful a man is not necessarily selfish and corrupt because he is a tory nor altruistic and pure because he calls himself a liberal or a reformer it is very doubtful whether nova scotia is better governed to-day than it was in the days of lord dalhousie or sir colin campbell native nova scotians have shown that we do not need to go abroad for lazy and impecunious placemen but two things are certain nova scotia is more contented if not with its government at least with the system by which that government is chosen and it has within itself the capacity for self-improvement before joseph howe nova scotians were under tutors and governors he won for them the liberty to rise or fall by their own exertions and fitted them for the expansion that was to come end of section five